Hello, and welcome to the Parabola Podcast. I'm story editor Betsy Cornwell. This month, I'd like to introduce you to our new summer 2020 issue of Parabola, Presence. And I'll begin with the focus from the issue from our editor, Jeff Zaleski. The world is battling the coronavirus as I write, and we are isolating from one another. This is an extraordinary time calling for extraordinary measures. In the opening essay of this summer edition of Parabola, American Zen pioneer Alan Watts points to a profound remedy to this suffering. He asks what we can do when there is no escape. His answer is, watch what happens, both internally and externally, in ourselves and with others. Seeing is a medicine prescribed in every tradition to cope with spiritual affliction, and the only way we can see clearly is through the cultivation of presence. Within these pages, we hear from Persian Sufis, a Hasidic rabbi, African Bushmen, a Hindu sage, an orangutan, two poets, a diplomat, and more, all with the same basic message. It is only by being present to the moment, here and now, that we can fully embrace this precious life and one another. What these and other contributors offer is not just theory. There is much practical advice in this issue on how to engage with the present moment, that is, with reality. The miracle is that the practice of presence not only enlivens ourselves, but allows us to share that new life with others and also to receive the presence of the divine. It is the foundation for truth, and it is the genesis of hope. With practice, presence can, in the words of John G. Bennett, allow us to serve the future and to serve with love, with hope, with confidence that it is possible for mankind to be born again. May this issue help us all in that sacred endeavor. I'll share with you now What Happens by Alan Watts, which is excerpted from his book Just So, Money, Materialism, and the Ineffable Intelligent Universe, published by Sounds True in February 2020. What happens when you are finally convinced that there is nowhere else to be but now? What happens when you realize that it is impossible to be anywhere else, to be conscious of anything else except what is present, and that there is absolutely no trickery you can play on your mind, whether it be iron-forged discipline, self-hypnosis, or some other form of hocus-pocus, to bring about enlightenment, satori, profound illumination, cosmic consciousness, or whatever else you want to call it, it will always be that the person who needs to be transformed is the one attempting to enact the transforming. It's like trying to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, biting your own teeth, looking into your own eyes without a mirror, or putting legs on a snake. It can't be done. It can be discouraging to face this fact, even depressing, but there's nothing to do about that either. If you're depressed, that's simply the you of the present moment. You can try to escape that with some form of distraction, but all you'd be doing is covering up dirt with paint. So if you feel let down, meaningless, or depressed by the whole thing, and you also understand that there's nothing you can do about it, what happens? You simply watch what happens. I don't mean that you simply watch your depressed state happening, but everything else too. 
There's your breath moving in and out and being still. There's what your eyes see and what your ears hear. There's a whole world happening all around and through you. You might not know what's going to happen next, and you might not know what to make of it anymore, so there's nothing left to do but watch. All escapes lead back to whatever it is you were running away from. You can take all sorts of detours, one detour after another, but eventually they all get shorter and simply bring you back to where you started. When all of our enterprises and ideals and aspirations meet with the sort of defeat I'm describing, we find ourselves quite naturally, and not in an affected or forced way, in the contemplative state. In that state, we just watch whatever it is that's going on. And when thoughts come up, we understand that the thoughts themselves are futile, at least as far as changing anything is concerned, because believing and following those thoughts is like trying to sweep dust from the stairs with bamboo shadows. Watch your thoughts in the same way you might notice the ticking of a clock, or birds chattering outside, or water dropping from a leaky faucet. All of that is part of what's going on. Life continues to do its thing. Just watch. Because the thoughts are just chatter, they'll eventually go away. The past disappears because we know it's just a memory, and the future disappears because it hasn't happened. It's just a thought. Tomorrow never comes. There is no tomorrow. And if you don't realize that there's no tomorrow, it's useless to make plans for it. But if you do realize that tomorrow isn't coming, then maybe plans will be of some use to you, because you can actually enjoy the result of your plans if they happen to work out. You can only handle tomorrow if you don't take it seriously. I'll share with you now my own essay from this issue, I Am Held. My two-year-old son woke me up at five, asking to watch TV. I let him. I lay in bed next to him while he watched Octonauts on the tablet I'd once thought I would never buy him, my head buzzing and aching, my eyelids scratching holes in my face. I couldn't go back to sleep for fear he'd hurt himself. Every time I close my eyes, I see him choking on some small object I haven't been vigilant enough to keep out of his reach, strangling on a power cord I haven't properly secured. At 6.30, we got up. I changed his nappy, changed his clothes, got his breakfast, and dressed and fed myself, then got us out the door so he could go to daycare and I could go to work. Once all of this was done, I was already tired, and I had yet to begin my day. This is a story most modern parents know well. I have four jobs. I'm also a single mother and an immigrant, estranged from my parents by my own choice, recovering from an abusive marriage. All these things make me tired on their own. All these things make me sad. I find I have very little emotional capacity left, and making a mistake at work or while cooking dinner can plunge me into a panic attack. Then I feel foolish, and I berate myself for reacting so strongly to small problems. Where is my grace, my spirit, my wisdom in those moments? Why are small things now so frightening when they're no larger than they ever were? In my weaker moments, and it sometimes seems like these are all I have, I rage against these circumstances that I have largely brought on myself. I chose to leave my country. I chose to leave my parents. I chose to leave my husband. I chose a volatile career as a writer instead of, oh, say, a CPA or a plumber. 
I chose to have a baby with a man who became dangerous to us and who has refused to see our child for a long time now. Still, he keeps us here. Because of international child abduction law, I cannot move out of my adopted country if I want to bring our child with me. Another thing I thought I'd never do is lie down with him for an hour every night as he falls asleep. But a few months ago, he started crying and crying if left to fall asleep alone, and I couldn't bear it, couldn't tough it out, as a childless friend advised me to do. This was partly a selfish choice. I wanted it to fall asleep alone so I could have some precious time to myself, but lying with him is better than the way my spine stacks up on itself like a Jenga tower if I have to listen to him cry and not go to him. I feel such shame for not focusing completely on my child in these moments when I'm holding him, for letting my mind wander to other things. But the other day, I had a thought about God. I was thinking about love and attachment, especially romantic attachment, the way my friends and myself spent our twenties so often staying with or going back to romantic partners who were unsafe or simply unkind. I know we longed for something from them that none of us have ever found in a fellow, fallible human being. Not our friends, not the people we date, not our parents. I know that what I longed for, what I searched for so long in partners and friends and mentors, all along the spectrum of kindness and cruelty, is a feeling of being completely held, of knowing that I was safe. We ought to experience this feeling, as young children, in our parents' or caregivers' arms, but as adults it is so much harder to find. No wonder we search for it in each other. The only place I have ever found it is with the presence that might be called God. Sometimes, when I reach out in prayer, or slip into meditation, or in certain unexpectedly transcendent moments of everyday life, I feel it. I let my soul lean back into a trust fall, and something catches me, holds me. I can let go of the heavy ache of anxiety and terror that I so often carry. What an honor, what a gift, that for a few years as a parent, you can provide that feeling for your small child. But the last time I leaned back and let God catch me, I thought, or the thought came to me, arrived, would it bother me while being held like this if I knew God's mind was elsewhere? If God was holding me, comforting me, while also attending to other things? The idea was absurd. In fact, it would be a terrible thing to be the sole focus of God. I cannot imagine that any sane person would want God's undivided attention. But if some loving presence can hold me, let me rest in its arms, while it also attends to more important things, that seems like such a blessing. As Mike Doty sings in His Truth is Marching On, let me know your enormity and my tininess. Help me see your infinity and my finiteness. Oh, let me be insignificant and held. Maybe this is what my child wants as well. I am comparing myself to God, and that seems like sin indeed. But a parent is, for a few years, a god to their child. Of course, this is a terrifying prospect, a mortifying responsibility, and one in which it is impossible not to fail. I write for and work with teenagers, and I believe that much of the teenage behavior that so frustrates adults comes from the very natural sense of betrayal in the teenage years that follows the heartbreaking realization that our parents are not the gods we worshipped in young childhood. The gods are gone, and a pathetic old hypocrite or two are all that's left in the ruined temple. 
teenagers gradually realize, especially now, that they are inheriting a world already corrupted by we old gods, possibly beyond repair. Some, like Greta Thunberg and Emma Gonzalez, turn their anger into incandescent activism. Hopefully, in young adulthood, we confront and acknowledge our own fallibility, and in our different ways, we can forgive our parents, theirs. I know very well how different that forgiveness can look for different families. For me, it looks like the boundary I finally grew up enough to make between my parents and myself. What it will look like for my son will be up to him. I know he will have much to forgive me for. Coming back to God in my own liminal, non-denominational, uncertain way has felt a bit like forgiving a parent. And letting God hold me helps me see, sometimes, that what I do for my own child might, in its imperfect and incomplete way, be all he and I need from each other, that the flawed love I have to give him might truly be enough. It is far easier for me to understand that perfection is an arrogant impossibility through the lens of my spiritual practice than through that of parenting. Especially as a single parent, I am always terrified of falling short of what he needs. The truth is that I do fall short. But remembering God helps me remember that none of us do anything else. Breathing in the scent of my child's hair brings my body peace in a way meditation and mindfulness and yoga have never matched. No matter how quickly he breaks the hugs he asks for, that breath I take with his head under my chin steadies me. I find something like faith. When I was pregnant, I chose a mantra for birth that I found in Terry Pratchett's Wintersmith. The witch protagonist speaks a powerful spell. This I choose to do. Where this takes me, there I choose to go. Whenever I remember it, even now, it gives me courage. I had no idea where becoming a mother would take me, that my marriage would end and I'd struggle as much as I have. But as bewildered as I sometimes feel, there is power in remembering that I chose this path and I am walking it the best I can. This present moment, I choose it. I am here with my child, in this house, in this country, in this life. I am here, and I can believe that I am held. James George, author, diplomat, seeker, and great friend to Parabola, died earlier this year, aged 101. The following excerpt from his The Little Green Book on Awakening reflects some of his many exceptional qualities, including an understanding of how humanity's highest aspirations may be embodied in the most mundane activities. Excerpted from The Little Green Book on Awakening in this issue of Parabola, this is called To Awaken by James George. A few months ago, my wife and I decided that we really must give up the convenience of bringing home our daily food shopping in plastic bags. Toronto has had to export its garbage across the border to Michigan, and Michigan does not want it anymore. Nobody does. Plastic bags last forever and are definitely unfriendly to the environment. So we decided we would not use them. But the next time we went grocery shopping, we forgot to bring the cloth bags we had brought and had to come home with plastic. And the next time. And it took us weeks to break the habit and form a new one. Our minds had decided, but our bodies were wired to the plastic bag habit. And we had to work on our forgetting before a new habit could be established. 
In the process, we had the opportunity to see how mechanical our habits are, and what a strong force maintains our mechanical behavior. The same blind behavior that on a global scale is now threatening to undermine the Earth's life support systems. We had a chance to study our sleep and what a determined effort is needed to change or wake up. We had to remember not just the cloth shopping bags, we had to remember ourselves and work on ourselves with our minds through our feelings for the planet and in our lazy bodies. Only when they came together did we change. And so it is in a myriad of ways in our daily life. We think we are awake and fail to see how everything happens by itself while we identify with our distracting dreams instead of paying attention. This inability to see our actual situation reinforces our hypnotic sleep and our collective failure to see in good time that humanity is destroying the environment on which we all depend. This is just another example of what I am calling sleep. This may also help to clarify what I mean by awakening. Sometimes a personal shock is necessary to wake up, and sometimes it takes the bigger eco-shocks of climate change to do the trick. But to stay awake, we must intend to remain aware in this more alive way, which is as dramatic a change of state as ordinary awakening is when compared to ordinary sleep. And that intention to stay awake is only fed by seeing, time and again, what we are up against, a force that resists our awakening and reinforces our automatic mechanical actions and reactions, until we have seen that in ourselves, as when we tried to switch from plastic bags to cloth shopping bags, and seen it repeatedly, we blithely assume that we are awake already, and no more demanding efforts are required of us to awaken. Ever since humans began to reflect on the forces shaping our destiny on this planet, our sages and prophets have tried to be in dialogue with the presumed creator of these forces, in order that they and their tribes could live in harmony with the creator. In one form or another, the sages and prophets were asking the question that should resonate today as never before, what can we do or be to serve you? At different times, and still today, a few real pioneers of humanity have addressed such questions to God, or to the universe, nature, the cosmos, consciousness, or the Akashic field. I am neither a sage nor a prophet, but I would address this question to the unknown, which for me is not limited to any designation by a human mind. This word, the unknown, evokes in me a deep feeling of awe for an omnipresent field of cosmic energy, the energy of life, intelligent energy, compassionate energy, wholeness. In asking such a question, I would try at every moment to remember that I am asking the unknown to give me intimations of what in my ordinary state of consciousness may be unknowable. So, Lord have mercy, along with a deep wish for awakening, is the only appropriate attitude. Is that a futile pursuit? Am I fooling myself and hoping for any kind of objective response? If I think I can receive on demand an answer by my own efforts, I probably am. But if I feel in my gut that the unknown wants to communicate with humans and the only obstacle is that we are not paying attention, then I have an obligation, even a sacred obligation, to listen intently for the whispers from the other shore and to listen as often as I am able to be present, open, and receptive to these higher vibrations. I cannot, on my own initiative, make contact with the higher, but I do not want to be asleep when I am being called from above to awaken. 
After all, if you were running the whole show, wouldn't you want to get those errant human beings on planet Earth to smarten up and change their stupidly unsustainable ways? Wouldn't you be trying to wake them up before they spoil your work, this beautiful blue planet hanging in space? If we are, as all traditions maintain, made in God's image, surely this is a legitimate inference for us to make. This approach does have its risks. It is subjective. We are very far from running the show, and our speculations must suffer from an anthropomorphic bias. They can go off track, lured by some wild imagination triggered not from above but from below, from my illusion of self-importance and my grandiloquent assumption that I really know. I must not forget my need to verify everything as rigorously as I can to the extent that this is possible. At the same time, I must not forget to trust the promptings of conscience and genuine intuition, which can so easily give up when confronted by my critical mind alone. So with these cautions, let us try to ask the question of how to serve, not just intellectually, but with our whole being, mind, feeling, body, and soul, to ask if we were asking the being of beings. Surely it is only when we assume that our own personal being is a particle of that greatness, just as our life is a part of the great life, that we may hope for an answer that is not totally subjective, but in some degree, depending on the quality of our wishing, objective. As above, so below. If the microcosm is indeed made in the image of the macrocosm, intercommunication must be not a mere human fantasy, but an aspect of the interconnectedness that is such a fundamental feature of the whole. When we begin to feel our connection with the whole, and therefore with each other, as a presence, we are ready to understand what Heraclitus was trying to tell us so long ago. Sleeping people live each in their own world. Only those who are awake have a world in common. Our time for this month's podcast has come to an end. You can find the new Presence issue on our online store, store.parabola.org, and read more about it on our newly revamped website at parabola.org. Please also join our vibrant social media communities on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I'm Betsy Cornwell, and this has been the Parabola Podcast. Thank you for listening.